All right, everybody, it's 11 o'clock. Welcome to 11th hour. If you could come in and take a seat, we will get started. As Michael mentioned, there are handouts uh, up here on the table in the front to my left. So if you're just walking in, feel free to walk around and grab one um, or grab one for a friend if someone's sitting next to you. And also, just a reminder, as always, if you could please turn off or silence your cell phone. And at the end of the presentation, I'll walk around with this microphone so that everyone can hear your, your questions. Writers often consider their work in conversation with other work. But until I saw Michael Morse's proposal for this talk, I never really thought about writing as correspondence, though, of course, it is. Poets don't select words arbitrarily. Michael teaches at the Ethical Cultural Culture Fieldston School in New York and has taught at the University of Iowa and the New School. His first book, Void and Compensation, was a finalist for the 2016 Kate Tufts Discovery Award. He has published poems in various journals, including A Public Space, The American Poetry Review, and Field, The Iowa Review, and Plowed Shares, and in anthologies that include The Best American Poetry 2012 and Starting Today, 100 Poems for Obama's First 100 Days. He is a recipient of fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown and numerous residencies. He received his MFA in poetry from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he is the poetry editor for the Literary Review. Please join me in welcoming Michael Morse. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. And I welcome you. Thank you for coming. Again, if you're just coming in, there are handouts down here, up to the front and the right, so please come and, and grab one of those. Um, I probably have too much material, so we'll try to get through it. We'll try to give you some ideas for your own writing. We'll do a little bit of writing while we're here today together, so I hope you have a utensil with which to write. Um, if not, you'll do it mentally. But they'll, they'll hopefully you'll walk away with this packet with some ideas for things you can try on your own. And I hope and trust that they will be um, not genre-specific. So if you're here doing nonfiction, fiction, poetry, it'll all work. Um, so, echo, letter, and tweet. Poetry is correspondence. Writing is correspondence. Um, as it says up on the board, I'm curious to, to think about and explore how writing, your writing, um, can inhabit a contemporary situation and yet be in dialogue with, in contact with, maybe even address a distant practitioner or piece, as well as a person, perhaps. And that other piece or person or practitioner can be inspiration, model, maybe even a foil to help us generate our writing. And we're going to look at some poems through the course of, the, through the course of this uh, 11th hour. And then we're also going to try our hand at some writing as well. Again, if you're just coming in, packets are up front to the right. Um, I'm going to be showing you some things on the screen that are not in the packet, just so I can throw even more stuff at you in a bewildering flurry of material. Um, I want to start out with a couple of quotes. My students will forgive me because they've seen these already. But I think these sort of set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. Um, Paul Salon has spoken of a poem and said, a poem as a manifestation of language, and thus essentially dialogue, can be a message in a bottle, sent out in the not always greatly hopeful belief that somewhere and sometime it could wash up on land, on heartland perhaps. Poems in this sense are underway. They are making towards something. And I'm very taken with this comment in this idea that even though this tends to be a somewhat solitary endeavor, 
The hope is that this is going to wash up on shore somewhere, on heartland, and be received. And that's sort of the premise, I think, of, of one way of looking at poetry and how I want to talk about poems today. Um, Osip Mandelstam sort of follows up on Salon's idea and says, um, at a critical moment, a seafarer tosses a sealed bottle into the ocean waves containing his name and a message detailing his fate. Wandering along the dunes many years later, I happen upon it in the sand. I read the message, note the date, the last will and testament of one who has passed on. I have the right to do so. I have not opened someone else's mail. The message in the bottle was addressed to its finder. I found it. That means I have become its secret addressee. So here are these letters that come to us in the form of poems, these messages in bottles that hopefully wash up on shore. And with that, we have a relationship with that writer and with that language. There's um, a poet named Alan Grossman has some interesting ideas about poetry. And one thing that he says that I love is he talks about a poem as a portal, um, as a means for making oneself visible to another. And that the whole endeavor of writing is a means of making our presences felt. And that idea of correspondence is something that appeals to me. I think Grossman talks about it a lot. Um, and so whether it's a direct epistolary, uh, epistolary address to somebody, I often read poems as though they're letters, even if there's no dear at the beginning or sincerely at the end. Take a look at page two in your packet, if you'll open up to the George Herbert poem that's there. It's also up on the screen in front of you. Uh, sometimes my friends will joke with me that the, the act of writing a poem is a bit of, uh, a bit of navel-gazing. It's a bit of a solitary endeavor, right? Um, but I'm not so sure about that. And even though we might know the myth of, of Echo um, and how Echo got in trouble because uh, she basically tried to cover up for Zeus as Zeus was consorting with other nymphs, and when Hera came to investigate her wandering husband, um, she babbled and sang and talked and distracted Hera, but she got caught and was punished so that the only thing that would be able to be uttered by her was the echo of whatever was last spoken by the person that she was corresponding with. Um, George Herbert takes this poem, uh, or takes this concept somewhere else, I think, and, 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 and one where he's sort of, I think, addressing this idea of echo as an analog of God of sorts. And I love this poem because it both sort of presents, I think, the solitary nature of writing and the limited response that we sometimes get. Sometimes we just hear an echo of our own voice, but it's enough to, be in a, to put us down a trail where maybe there's some sort of correspondence. And we generate words that we correspond with. Oh, who will show me the delights on high, echo, I. Thou, echo, thou art mortal, all men know, echo, know. Wert thou not born among the trees and leaves? Echo, leaves. And are there any leaves that still abide? Echo, bide. What leaves are they? Impart the matter holy. Echo, holy. Are holy leaves the echo of then of bliss? Echo, yes. Then tell me, what is that supreme delight? Echo, light. Light to the mind, what shall the will enjoy? Echo, joy. But are there cares and business with the pleasure? Echo, leisure. Light, joy, and leisure, 
but shall they persevere or persevere? Echo, ever. Um, I always read this, and I'm always, always struck how it feels a little artificial to read the echo and not just go high and then I, or no and then no, and then leaves and then leaves. And I like this poem because I feel like it's also, it speaks to me about the generative process of how sometimes we come up with poems and we come up with correspondence based on the music of the words juxtaposed next to each other. And yet there's something far more intelligent about Herbert's God who somehow gives an answer that's not fully an answer. It's a little bit of this, this contradiction where we're, we're putting our language out there and we get sort of a half response. But it's the beginning of a response. It's that initial utterance that we wait and hear an echo, maybe before we get correspondence with an other, with a listener, with a reader. Um, let's turn the page and let's go to the letter. We start with the echo, we get to the letter. Um, on page three of your packet, there are a couple of poems. There's on page three and four. There are two poems by Richard Hugo. Hugo is a poet who died in 1982. Um, I believe he taught here at Iowa at some point. And his poems are filled with failed towns, isolated people, struggling communities, and yet they're tinged with a humanity uh, and glimmers of faith in that humanity. Um, they're a little dark and a little gray. He's got a great poem called Degrees of Gray at Phillipsburg. But I love that there's something optimistic that emerges from his poetry as well. Um, there are two poems here. I'm going to leave the first one, Letter to Simic from Boulder, for you to read on your own. I'll give you a little background on that. Um, he met the poet Charles Simic in San Francisco in 1972, and they were talking about how Simic was from Belgrade. And then Hugo began to draw out on the, on the tablecloth in front of them um, sort of a, a topographical map of Belgrade. And Simic said, oh, you've been there. And Hugo said, no, no, in World War II, I dropped bombs on Belgrade. And it turns out that Simic was a child growing up in Belgrade at that time, and Hugo felt horrible. Um, but he wrote this beautiful poem upon meeting Simic um, and sort of his, 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 his feeling sorry about that. And it's a beautiful poem that I'm going to urge you to read on your own. I would like us to read the next poem, which is called Letter to Matthews from Barton Street Flats. And this is to the poet Bill Matthews. Given our climate of certain executive orders that tend to vilify others, I think this poem has some interesting lessons for us to consider. Um, and if the letter is meant to go out, if the poem is meant to go out and engender correspondence, and sympathy and empathy with an other. I believe that letters do that, and I believe that this letter poem does that from Richard Hugo writing to Bill Matthews. A couple of terms in here. Um, the term Nisei is a person born in the United States or Canada whose parents were immigrants from Japan. Letter to Matthews from Barton Street Flats. Dear Bill, this is where the Nisei farmed, here where the blacktop of a vast shopping complex covers the rich black bottomland. Lettuce sparkled like a lake. Then the war took everything, farm, farmers, and my faith that change, I really mean loss, is paced slow enough for the blood to adjust. I believe the detention of Tata, my friend, was temporary madness like the war. Someday I thought it will all be over, this tearing out everything, this shifting people away like so many pigs to single thickness walled shacks in Wyoming where winter rips like the insane self-righteous tongue of the times. In Germany, Jews. In America, 
Japs. They came back and their property was gone. Some technicality those guardians of society, lawyers, found. Or their goods had burned in unexplained fires. Tata came back wounded from honest German guns and got insulted in white center. I was with him. Oh, a dreadful scene. He moved justly bitter to Milwaukee. Haven't seen him in years. Why do I think of this today? Why, faced with this supermarket parking lot filled with gleaming new cars, people shopping unaware, a creek runs under them, do I think back 30-some years to that time all change began, never to stop, not even to slow down one moment for us to study our loss, to recall the Japanese farmers bent deep to the soil? Hell, Bill, I don't know. You know the mind, how it comes on the scene again and makes tiny histories of things. And the imagination, how it wants everything back one more time. How it detests all progress but its own. All war but the one it fights over and over. The one no one dares win. And we can depart, we can depart those others and feel safe for a time. But old dangers and pleasures return. And we return to the field of first games where, when we find it again, we look hard for the broken toy, the rock we called home plate, evidence to support our claim our lives really happened. You can say all this better. Please do. Write it the way it should sound. The gain will be mine. Use my Montana address. I'm going back home, not bent under the load of old crops, still fat and erect, still with faith. We process what grows to the end, the poem. Your good friend, Dick. I love that he engages directly with Matthews at the beginning of the poem, comes back to him at the end, even says in a self-deprecating fashion, you can probably write this better than I can. But it seems to me there's something quite empathic and loving in that nature of, lean, of, of reaching out to this other, this other poet, and sharing one's ideas and one's communication for more hope in a time that's pretty bleak. And while we're thinking about Japanese internment camps with this poem in your packet, clearly I think um, it's, a, it's a good reminder um, based on our political climate today and what's, and what's going on as well. Um, so that's one kind of correspondence, a direct letter to someone else. And I hope that you can try your hand on that. There are tons of examples out there beside Hugo, of course, um, but I wanted to give you two poems of his um, as something to maybe imitate. I want to talk now about another kind of letter, um, and we're going to shortly do our own sort of first exploratory writing prompt where we're going to write for a couple of minutes. Um, and this is, you know, you're here, you're here to write. You're also here to talk about the work of others this week. And I'm sure that each of you has a certain kind of relationship with many different authors, many different writers. Some authors you love, some you would love to challenge, some that you remember as an initial hero or heroine from your earlier reading days, etc. And so I want to talk about some poems that, that are directly written to an author. You might even want to write to somebody whose work you've been reading in your classes this week. Okay. Um, in October of 2016, um, an Italian journalist named Claudio Gatti used some forensic reporting and accounting to actually track down and unfortunately out the writer Elena Ferrante, who had been writing in anonymity, and beautifully so. Um, the writer Alex Schwartz, who um, writes for The New Yorker, 
And I can say that I taught Alex in eighth grade, and I'm pretty sure she was a lot smarter than me then. So this is what she had to say about this. Like many, maybe most enthusiastic Ferrante readers, I have no interest in knowing who the writer who publishes her novel under the name Elena Ferrante is. I don't care. Actually, I do care. I care about not finding out. There are so few avenues left in our all-seeing, all-revealing digital world for artistic mystery of the true kind, mystery that isn't concocted as a publicity play, but that finds its origins in the writer's soul as a prerogative of his or her ability to create. That kind of mystery has a corresponding point in the soul of the receptive reader. And the, the key word for me there, the echo that I play of, off of with the George Herbert poem is this idea of corresponding, right? It's sort of a weird thing to think about corresponding with somebody you don't actually know, but you're corresponding with the work and how it moves you and what essences come about with that. So if you actually turn now to page five in your packet, there is a group of letters, a letter poems, from a book by Tina Kane called Dear Elena, Letters for Elena Ferrante. And I thought that some of Alex Schwartz's ideas about the anonymity of the author and not having to know who it is um, sort of actually sort of both blends in and sort of is countered by Tina's poems where she's writing directly to this author whose work she's fallen in love with with the knowledge that Elena Ferrante at this point in time was unknown. She really didn't know who she was. It didn't matter. She's corresponding with the work and with the writer, I suppose. Here are two poems. I'm going to first look at the poem called Confession in the bottom left corner of the, of, of the page. Again, we're on page five in our packet. Confession. My admiration akin to romance is a kind of unrequited love, as in how I must remind myself that your words are not my personal counsel, that you belong to everyone, not just me. I am neither the lost child nor the doll dropped down the great, both of whom share my name, who through intimacy of invention share you in a way I never will, another Tina. I am comprised of people I've loved, often lost, who inhabit me like ghosts, so that my presence verges at times on absence, making me visible only to those who can see this hem of flesh and blood, truly. And a second poem, Book of Days. You haven't asked, and I haven't spoken, of those days of abandon behind us now, or how the hours piled up like books upon our heads, as if to document the upright steadiness and strong spine of our singular regard. The days were long, yet the seasons passed, the children grew, and that ailing dog of yours in the office, chapter after chapter, a metaphor for death, love, loyalty, or luck, and your front door stuck shut with the broken lock, trapping you inside with your children for days. Another slim volume added to the stack. I haven't said that each life is a book in itself, one you wrote and I read always. And I love the salutations at the end, the open-ended, yours as ever, truly, always, direct letters to this author who meant so much to Tina. Here's what I'd like you to do. 
Um, we're going to take three minutes. So if you have something to write with, take out a pen or pencil or your tablets or whatever you're doing. And I want you to meditate, but I want you to write as you meditate. Okay? Um, think for a second about who are the authors that mean the most to you? And have you ever directly said anything to them? Okay. If you're like me, maybe you remember your first reading experience. I remember the first book I bought was a book called Watership Down by Richard Adams. Right? Now, I still haven't written a letter poem to Richard Adams, but based on thinking about what I was going to do and present this week, I think I want to write him a note. I want to respond to him because of that significant moment of that pleasure of first buying a book from somebody else and finding a book from somebody else um, that meant something to me. So I wonder if you can meditate and actually write, and even put this in the form of the letter, to an author who has given you something that's meaningful. You want to write a note to an author of your choice who has said something to you that has mattered. And if you want to borrow Tina's form, since you're open up to page five in your packet, go ahead and do that. And spend the next two minutes or so just jotting down a preliminary letter to an author that you have a relationship with. I'm going to suggest that this is somebody of whom you're fond because you're going to have time in a minute to challenge an author whom maybe you're not fond of. All right? Anyway, see what comes up. See where you go with this. A couple minutes of writing time. All right, take a minute to just finish up whatever idea you're on now. I probably gave you just enough time to get started, and now that you're really cooking, I'm going to cut you off. I apologize for that. But you'll be able to come back to this for sure. I hope it, something got started there. I want to look now at another way of addressing an author whose work we've considered um, to talk about a correspondence that might exist as a challenge to what somebody has written. Um, Sometimes that challenge is good-natured. Sometimes that challenge is angry and annoyed and is taking some sort of affront or offense at what's been said or wants to put out a counter voice, a voice that's maybe not been heard in response to whatever an author raises. Um, so there um, in your packet, if you go ahead and flip to page 7, Actually, go to, go to six really quickly. I want to mention one thing before the challenge. I'm sorry. Um, on page six, just something to take note of. The poet Matthew Rohr, um, Matthew Rohr was, a, was, was here at Iowa with me as a student, um, a very fine poet in his own right. Um, he has this book called Surrounded by Friends where he has a series of poems where he addresses other poets. And he dips into other poets' work, particularly the poet Basho and ends up having a correspondence with another poet, not directly to that poet, but by borrowing an image, a phrase, some language from that poet, and then putting it into his own poetry. He, for many years, um, had a collaborative relationship, probably still does, with the poet Joshua Beckman. And uh, Matt talks about feeling at a loss by not having Joshua to always communicate with. So what he did was he started, he started turning to other models and poets whom he loved. And Basho was one of them. Issa was one. Busan. There are a bunch of different poets in this book to whom Matt writes these poems, which are sort of a correspondence of sorts. I just want to read one really quickly in the middle of page six, top top of page six, called Poem Written with Basho. 
After drinking last night, I climbed into the air and slept badly. A stiff neck, a bridge of flowers, led me into the morning high above the skylarks. The children ate cereal under a gloomy sky, and sadly, the girl loves her mother more than she loves me. I drink from a downpour and choose her socks with tiny whales. I wrote her a song about our pressing need to grocery shop until it was clear the mirror showed a few more years and a disappointing donut. Let that be my name. I love how Matt sort of echoes Basho's often uh, frivolous sense of silliness and delight, but also the weightiness of the images that he picks and chooses. And I love how this becomes a letter of sorts to Basho, even though it's maybe borrowing an image, perhaps the drinking last night, and then meshing it and merging it with his own world of um, socks with tiny whales on them, etc., and being a parent and going to the grocery. So another way of corresponding with a particular writer. Now back to the idea of a letter as a challenge. Um, you can go ahead and, and flip ahead in your packet to page seven. Um, if you're not familiar with the poet Tyemba Jess, J-E-S-S -S is how he spells his last name, um, he published a book last year called Olio, um, which is a tremendous achievement, I think, uh, an awesome book. Um, Growing up, I always thought, my, mother, my southern mother always referred to oleo as, you know, margarine. It's sort of a mixture of sorts. Um, but for the purposes of Tyamba Jess's book, um, and oleo was the second part of a minstrel show. And minstrelsy was, in the mid to late 19th century, this country's most popular form of entertainment. A dicey one at that, right, with performers in blackface. And then even dicier was the idea of African-American performers who continued to perform themselves in blackface with paint, right? Because that was the only means and way in which they might be able to perform and have an audience. And this is something that Jess tackles in this book um, in a masterful way. Um, giving the voice to first-generation freed slaves and performers, many of whom um, don't have their work recorded. Um, Ciceretta Jones, the first black diva to sing at Carnegie Hall. Blind Tom Wiggins, um, who is a piano savant, um, a brilliant pianist. They are the speakers of many of the poems. He's got about a dozen characters that speak in this book. Um, and one of the characters um, who ended up going around and, and speaking about his, uh, about, his, about his life and his travels was a guy named Henry Box Brown, who literally... Um, packed himself into a crate in Virginia and shipped himself to freedom in Philadelphia. He mailed himself to freedom. And so this Henry becomes a way of corresponding with another poet named John Berryman, who's famous for the dream songs, and a character named Henry in the dream songs, who sometimes speaks in blackface. Now, there's, there's not enough time here to go into details about that, but Jess has a, has a problem with Berryman. And Berryman was, is, is one of my poetic heroes in many ways, but one that I've always realized is, is tricky to navigate because of this very issue. Um, but so here's, this is a, if you look at the board up in front of you now on the screen, one of the, one of the things that Jess does, these are, these are poems in text, but they're also poems that fold out. It almost looks like a huge stack of song music. It's a very thick book, and there are pages that, you can, that are perforated, that fold out. And in one of these poems, you have the voice of Henry Box Brown talking about his experience. Okay? And on the opposite page, to the right of that, you have the face 
and text of a bounty hunter who's trying to catch him and bring him back home. And the interesting thing, and unfortunately because it's vertical here, you're not going to see the horizontal nature of this. But one of the things that Jess does so masterfully in this book is he's constantly putting texts together that you can read in multiple ways. You can read this poem, you can read Henry Box Brown's part of the poem, straight up and down here, coffined up in this here box, that's me, Henry, postage paid free man, right? Or you can read across, coffined up in this here box, that's me, Henry, trembling like a whip-torn waif. He'll arrive, second line, postage paid, paid freeman. I tell myself that I ain't, second line, caught, sealed in slave chains again. So this poem continually, this, this book continually presents us with poems where there's a, little, a literal correspondence across the page of different texts and different ways of actually reading them directionally. And what you have in front of you on page seven in your packet is a section of, of Henry Box Brown poems in response to John Berryman's Henry. Let's look on page seven at the bottom right. This is, this is dream song number one by John Berryman. Huffy Henry hid the day, unappeasable Henry sulked. I see his point, a trying to put things over. It was the thought that they thought they could do it made Henry wicked and away but he should have come out and talked. All the world like a woolen lover once did seem on Henry's side. Then came a departure. Thereafter, nothing fell out as it might or ought. I don't see how Henry, pride open for all the world to see, survived. What he has now to say is a long wonder the world can bear and be. Once in a sycamore, I was glad all at the top, and I sang. Hard on the land wears the strong sea, and empty grows every bed. And here is time to Jess in correspondence, challenging in a sense, writing to the John Berryman poem in his poem called Freed Song, Dream Song. And you'll notice that it borrows the tone and the structure and even some of the essences of, of the dream song. Freed Song, Dream Song. Our box Henry hid away. John Berryman's old Henry sulked. I see his point. He was trying to put one over. It was that he thought that we thought he could do it that breaks our Henry out this away. So here he will come out and talk. All the world like a fool bent lover once did see from old Henry's side. Here comes a departure. Hereafter, something falls out. Now it might go fraught. Let us see how Box Henry, pride open for all to see, survives. What he has now to say is a long wonder the world can bear and see. Once with his black face worn, John was glad all at the top, and he sang, Here in this land where some strong be, let Box Henry grow in every head. So you can see that direct correspondence with Berryman, right? And to sort of put out that story of Henry Box Brown. And I think that Tyamba feels much more strongly about his Henry than Berryman's Henry. So I would suggest to you, if you find an author presenting something challenging, here's a way to respond. A poem is correspondence. Let's move on. Page eight in your packet. The poet Morgan Parker 
has a response. Not so much to Yeats' poem, but in Yeats' famous poem, The Second Coming, which is up on the board, you have that famous last line of slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. And I love that Morgan Parker takes that and borrows from that tradition, and she writes her poem, Slouching Toward Beyonce, which is what you have on page eight. I'm keeping my eye on the clock and making sure that I want to get to at least two preliminary writing things, so I'm going to leave this poem for you to read on your own. But again, you're seeing a poet, much like Matt Rohrer is, writing off of another poet and having a correspondence with that essence, with that poem, but crafting her own voice and her own ideas and using the other poem, perhaps, the other correspondent as a springboard. Um, Page nine, I'm also just going to very quickly mention that um, page nine has a poem by Larry Levis, which is a direct address to the poet, the Spanish poet Miguel Hernandez, um, who is imprisoned and perhaps is most famous for this poem called Lullaby of the Onion. And you can find this um, on your own pretty readily. Um, I'll read the epigraph. Um, Hernandez wrote this poem when he, uh, he dedicated it to his son after receiving a letter from his wife saying that all she had to eat was bread and onions. Right? And Miguel Hernandez writes this beautiful poem to his child, Lullaby of the Onion, as he's in prison. He's been in prison for, um, by, he's been in prison by Franco and Franco's forces. And he writes this poem to his son from a jail cell. And in your packet on page nine, you have Larry Levis, Out of Empathy, and in correspondence, writing, For Miguel Hernandez in his sleep and his sickness, spring 1942, Madrid. So another direct address, this time in empathy, to a poet who's no longer living, but whose spirit very much survives. All right, so letters. We've seen some letters. Now we're going to go to some smaller forms. We're going to go to some postcards. If you turn to page 10... I'm going to preface our talk of the postcard as we move to more brief forms of communication and ask if anybody here knows who Friedhelm Hillebrand is. Does that name ring a bell? Anybody? I didn't know either. He's the inventor of the text message. The inventor of the text message. He's the one who came up with the idea of limiting text messages to 160 characters. And the way that he came up with that, or one of the ways in which he came up with that figure, was, well, first thing he did is he figured out a nice kind of secondary channel way of, of using um, already existing communicative channels to get text messages across to people. Um, and I think it, you know, I don't know what it costs these days to send a text message. Most, most of you probably have all-encompassing plans. But in looking, in doing a tiny bit of research here, it was looking, in about 2009, it cost about 20 cents a text, which is probably the single biggest economic markup since, like, movie, movie house popcorn. It, made, it costs the companies nothing to send these things over channels that already exist, and yet you get charged for it. But anyway... Hillebrand came up with this idea that you only needed 160 characters, and people on the committee with whom he was working were very dubious about this. They doubted it. They said, why 160? And so Hillebrand decided to do some research. And he sat at a typewriter, and he typed out random sentences and questions on paper, and he found that the average amount of the characters that he used was around 160, just under 160. And he also found out, when he looked at a bunch of postcards, 
that he had received, and he found the postcards often topped out at around 160 characters too. So from this older form of, of communication, the postcard, comes the text message that we have today and that, and that limit on the characters. Um, here are on page 10 of your packet a couple of postcard poems, and then we're going to try our hand at a couple off of some images that I'm going to project on the screen for you. Here's a poem from Heather McHugh, and she clearly goes over 160 characters, but we won't hold her against. We won't hold it against her. Called Postcard from Provincetown. It's not the provinces exactly, though 400 miles away, you are the heart of civilization, to my mind. At hand, my loneliness perceives the waterside's cubes and blocks, and blocks amounting, amounting four mere miles away across parabolas of bay with late sun crazing them to gold. Extending hurts, so I intend. My windows full of shorelines gone. The gulls slide by, symmetrical in wind and glass. Anoint my future, O oh amazing memory. The only boat is two boats, leashed to a single puncture point. So condensing those longer letters that we've seen, now down to something a little more pithy, and obviously contained in space, the postcard. Um, Tracy K. Smith, who is going to be our next poet laureate, um, has a longer poem uh, that's called They May Love All That He Has Chosen and Hate All That He Has Rejected. A very, very intense group of poems. Um, and, and many of these poems are written um, in the voices of murder victims and are addressed to their murderers. So a very, very heavy project. And this poem that I'm going to read to you, which is uh, in the bottom left corner of page 10, um, was uh, written uh, by Stephen Tyrone Johns in, in 2009. He was the security guard at the Holocaust Museum who was killed by a white supremacist gunman um, uh, who was then subsequently killed himself. This poem is called, again, it's from this larger poem, They May Love All That He Has Chosen and Hate All That He Has Rejected. Dear James, I walked the whole mall today from the Capitol to the Lincoln Memorial I thought I'd skip the museum altogether, but my feet wanted to go there, so I let them. I stood outside the doors trying to see in, but it was so bright my own reflection was all that shone back at me. I can choose to feel or not to feel. I realize that today. Mostly, it's just nice to move through the crowds like I used to, unnoticed. Only now they move through me, too. Men, women, everyone, feeling untouched, but I've touched them. It's funny, I feel like myself. The breeze off the Potomac is calm. Sincerely, Stephen. Yeah. So, on a lighter note, let us try our own hand at some postcard poems, just for giggles. I'm gonna project a couple of images on the board for you, okay? You might think, since you've come here to Iowa City, about to whom you might like to write a postcard and let them know how your experience here has been, what you've been thinking about, what you've been dwelling on, what you've been experiencing in your own work. Or you might just want to check in and let them know that you're doing okay. Um, and here, even though I'm selecting the images for you, see if they spark anything in particular that allows you to sort of comment on that image 
and then go wherever else you might want to go in corresponding with this other, be it a beloved, a friend, family member, whomever. All right? So I'm going to project three images on the board. I can, I'm looking at the clock, actually. For time's sake, I'm going to say we're going to do two. Okay? So we're going to do two images. Um, one kind of lovely, and the other slightly goofy. All right? So here's your first image. And let's use this to spark a postcard to somebody. Perhaps caught in the hail and the rain yesterday on the way home. Here's your first image. Compose a postcard. All right, take a minute to finish up your thought there. And then I'm going to give you a second image. I think that this is perhaps how some of my students in my class might feel sometimes. Where is this man taking us? Here's your second postcard prompt. See what ideas this prompts, and maybe write this to a different correspondent. See what comes to mind in about two minutes. All right, so wrap up whatever thought you have now. And again, these are brief snippets. I know you're not getting a ton of time to work on these, but I do hope that these will help you launch some things that you can come back to and continue to work on. Um, in the next couple minutes as I wrap up, I'm going to give you a couple of ideas to try on your own, a couple of try these on your own that you'll need the packet for, and you'll have some poems to look at. If you look at page 11 in your packet, Fady Judah, uh, is a poet who came out with a book called Textu in 2014, and all the poems are composed on the cellular phone's text message screen. Um, and I want to read a couple of these to you for their brevity, their haiku kind of moments, their haiku kind of essences, and also for this wonderful thing that happens. I don't know if any of you uh, create notes or messages on your phone using the microphone attachment. Sometimes these lead to wonderful mistakes and errors that can generate excellent language that might be a mistaken message, but in poetic play can often generate some fresh language and fresh experiences. For Fady Judah, I want to look at, um, in the left-hand column, the poem called Descending Tongue, which I think plays with this idea of the text message and the errors we sometimes make in them. Descending Tongue, I am a fig of your imagination, Fig meant for it. You'll care a fig. Give a fig. Bleach it. My flesh is red, my milk white, my skin is honey sweat. And directly across from that in the right-hand column on page 11, revolution number one. The proof's in the pudding. The back nine isn't like the front. Do I know what democracy is? Watching another seek it? Amazing grace, sweet toothache. And finally, two more things. The tweet at the bottom of the page. 140 characters, you know about it. You know a certain politician who doesn't like to read, who likes to communicate in them. I think your tweets will be better. Here's a poem by Elizabeth Alexander called Teeny Tiny Poem, also on page 11, left column. Teeny Tiny Poem just enough to hold one excellent big word, impluvium, open-eyed, courtyard, collecting rain, as all poems do, sky life, open, 
birds do tweet. And Robert Pinsky, low-pay piecework, the fifth-grade teacher and her followers, five classes, 28 in each, all hers, 140 different characters. All right. One last try of this before we wrap up. Um, if you look at um, the very last page of your packet, page 12, Yates has this great quote, out of our quarrel with others, we make rhetoric. Out of our quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. And I want to come back. This is sort of a bookend to, um, to, uh, to what we talked about at the beginning, the echo. And this is sort of, sometimes as poets, we end up talking to ourselves, right? But you can have a correspondence with the multiple selves of who you are. Um, and Borges has this wonderful uh, prose poem called Borges and I. And your mission, should you uh, accept this challenge, is to write a prose poem with your last name and I as the title. And one of the ways that you might set this up is by doing a little preliminary, a preliminary list. Okay? Column A, a food that you absolutely love, a hobby activity that you love, a beverage of your choice, a place to which you'd love to visit on vacation or return to, a musician or a band that you love. And then column B, you're coming up with the antitheses of those. Food you can't stand, etc. It's not going to make much sense right now. But when you read the Borges poem, which is not so much about an alter ego, but about the self versus the writing self, you'll see the two different personalities emerge in that poem. And Borges ends up addressing an alter ego of sorts. And it's a very fun way to play with this idea of perhaps having multiple sides of yourself correspond with each other. This is taking George Herbert's echo poem to a different kind of level, but bringing it back to the initial echo that perhaps is the reason why we decided to put our voices out in there, in the world, in the first place, with the hope that it's going to wash up on somebody else's heartland. So I hope that I've given you a little bit of a, of a good primer and given you some exercises to try on your own. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's six of, so if you have questions, you can, we can linger and we can talk. Other than that, thank you for your attention, and I hope this has been some good food for thought for you today. So thank you. Any questions or ideas? Yeah. Was of the people with the boxes over the head. It seems sort of remarkable. These are just sort of random, random photographs that I thought would be sort of interesting, and, and I wanted to do one that was a little bit more sentimental and cute, uh, and then I wanted to do one that was a little quirky and a little jarring, and I just thought the idea of coming out into the sky from these boxes might be kind of amusing. So, yeah. Yeah, could you go back down to the list? Sure, the list. Yep, yep, yep. Sure, here's your list. Okay. Questions as we wrap up? Thank you, guys.